Welcome to the All In Gospel Bible Study. Each week, we move chapter by chapter through the Bible towards a comprehensive understanding of what the Bible teaches. All In Gospel is recorded live in White Bear Lake, Minnesota, featuring Dr. Sean Dickers. Get into Nehemiah, it's the story of the third wave, or the third group of people that returned from Babylon to come back to rebuild the city of Jerusalem and rebuild the temple that Jesus will actually show up in and come and teach in the courts of. So we are about 400 years before Christ, and we are closing in on the last period of recorded history before God just goes silent. And this is, so Nehemiah is just one of the, the most chronologically current stories we have. Other than that, we have Malachi the prophet. And so here we are. Uh, verse 1. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah, came, it came to pass in the month of Chislev in the 20th year of Artaxerxes, 20th year of Artaxerxes. As I was in Shushan, the citadel, that Hanani, one of my brethren, came with men from Judah, and I asked them concerning the Jews who had escaped, who had survived the captivity, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the survivors who are left from captivity in the province are there in great distress and reproach. The wall of Jerusalem is also broken down and its gates are burned with fire. So verse 1, uh, and if you just skip ahead to chapter 2, uh, you'll see that both chapter 1 and chapter 2 are in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, but there's more dates here. And when you look at the dates and figure it all out, it's been about 13 years since Ezra. So between the second wave and the third year, there's about a 13-year period. Between the first and second wave, there was a longer period of time. And again, if you want to check that yourself, Ezra 7-7 will give you that second wave. Uh, the first wave with Zerubbabel, the second wave with the temple getting built is Ezra. Zerubbabel builds the altar. Ezra builds the temple. The third wave, what's left is the rest of the city and walls, putting some sort of defensive, protective structure around this city. And in the ancient world, that's a pretty big deal. You don't have walls, you don't have safety, and you don't have peace of mind. And so there's three Babylonian invasions that take the Jews out of the Holy Land, and there's three waves bringing them back to the Holy Land. It mirrors perfectly. And the Bible records three distinct returning periods. The city of Shushan, we would call that Susa. It's one of the largest cities in the Babylonian Empire, but the Persians make Susa their capital. So it's not just a big Persian city, it's where the king of Persia sits. Uh, this is why we don't call them Babylonians. We also don't call them Shushanians. Uh, they're Persians, and they picked this city to be the citadel. So that's why they use that in verse 1. Meaning, Nehemiah comes from the capital city. We're going to see that he's actually even in more of a prestigious position than just being from the city. We know that Nehemiah is of high rank. Uh, we also know that this is after Esther who was also of high rank. So of the 50,000 or so people that returned to Jerusalem, estimates are that in Babylon, there's about 2 million Jewish people from the first three captivity waves. So of the three returning waves, there's only about 50,000. Percentage-wise, that's more than 98% of the Jews stay in Babylon and do not return to the Holy Land. We're really talking about a remnant of people. Um, hundreds of thousands of Jewish people remain in what today is Iran. Uh, since then, most of those Jewish people have been purged out of Iran, but at this period of time, 
They're a large and significant population. And if you read the book of Esther, many of them are being promoted into positions of advising and authority to the Persian. Persians like, especially Artaxerxes, has taken uh, a trust and respect for the Jewish people largely from the story of Esther. The story of Esther also shows you there's a number of people at court that hate the Jewish people and try to erase them. So Daniel's vision has just happened for my guys that are in the guys study. Daniel's vision's being given right before Nehemiah is, is happening. So <laughs> I bet that's Sharon. Anyways, we'll keep back at it. Hanani, the word means gracious. Uh, the temple is not mentioned here. This We're going to find out later that Hanani is, is more than just a, uh, a friend uh, or a brethren that came. It's actually the, the word there for brethren is being used as it's his brother. So Nehemiah's brother comes back and reports and says things aren't good. He asks him and, he, and he's concerned about Jerusalem and Israel even though he lives in Babylon. And I think this is, we start to get to know this character named Nehemiah. And Nehemiah cares for the well-being of Jerusalem and for the well-being of the Jewish people. In that sense, like Ezra was getting closer to the church age, this is also an indicator that's pretty close to the church age. Most devout believers, Christians, actually still have a heart for the Jewish people and a heart for Israel and a heart for Jerusalem. And we wish for their best. We pray for the peace of Israel. So he's living at court. He's a devout person. He believes in Yahweh. Most of the Jewish people have been secularized. The story of Nebuchadnezzar with the statue is a huge part of that. Um, and in this point, you have a small group of people that are still loyal. Nehemiah and his brother are two of those people. And the report is great distress and reproach. The Hebrew words there are ra and herpa. Yes, the word for distress in the Hebrew is ra, which I do think is kind of a, a layover from their, their history with Egypt. Evil and scorn are the tone of this. The people of the Jewish people living in Jerusalem are being disgraced. And that's that idea of distress and reproach. The people of God are also the reproach there is the idea of an embarrassment. Yes, they're in Jerusalem, but they're kind of a joke. And people are mocking them. And there's, there's this idea of the hostility because with distress and reproach, this stress and this embarrassment are not how the people of God should be living. And this bothers Nehemiah, right? So we're going to see that Ezra had a prayer where God's people would be set apart and that they would build a wall, but apparently the wall doesn't get built. So Ezra doesn't really finish that part of what he wanted to do. So living amongst hostile neighbors in the ancient world would mean ongoing stress, ongoing fear, even terror. You'd go to bed at night wondering if you'd be safe in the morning. If you don't have walls around your city, any raiding band of bandits can come through and do whatever they want. And that's the condition the brother reports. The wall of Jerusalem gets mentioned. Like this is the part of it, verse 3. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down. That's the brother explaining why there's so much stress and terror here. There's stress and terror because they do not have a wall. They don't have something around them that protects them and guards them. And I love the fact that Sherry just asked about the wall last, was it last week or the week before last? And when you get to Nehemiah, the wall is the issue. It is the conversation. So it's fleshed out. Tell Sherry to listen to tonight. And she'll get her answer, I think. The Bible also points out a gate. When there's a wall, there's a gate. Because the wall is not just to keep people out permanently. The wall is to control where people get in and where people get out. That there's a control to the flow of people getting out in and out of God's city. And God's house. So gates 
if they're burnt are also mentioned here. The gate being burned with fire means they don't have control over who comes in and out of this space. That would be terrifying. Second Chronicles 32, 7, God commands his people to be strong and courageous and to not be afraid or dismayed. But if you're in great distress and reproach, you're afraid and you're dismayed. So what bothers Nehemiah here is that living in fear is not the position that God's people should ever be in. And so it bothers him. And, and as he's at the king's court, we're going to see at the end, very end of the chapter, last line, he's at the king's court. He knows what leadership looks like. He knows what it means to be a leader that protects their people. The other command here, Deuteronomy 11.8, I'm just, this is why Nehemiah is bothered by this report. God says, therefore, you shall keep every commandment which I command you today. Ezra is a whole book about them trying to keep the commandments. That you might be strong and go in and possess the land which you cross over to possess. God's will for the Jewish people is that they would be strong in this land, not be in distress and anxious and worried and tired. Living as survivors in a ruins is not reasonably good safety for these people. 1 Corinthians 16, 13, the same thing's true of Christians today. Watch, stand fast in the faith, be brave, and be strong. Christians that are terrified of what people think about them or worried about if they're safe or not in their beliefs and are timid and are, and are always asking permission to talk about their faith, that's not the place where, people, where Christians are where God wants them to be. He wants you to be bold and strong and confident in what you're doing. Walls protect, they also give peace because they create a line where people know what's God's territory and what's not God's territory. And when you understand boundaries, you can actually live within the boundaries. They did a, a cool study, one of my favorite studies, about children's playgrounds. And they said, we don't want fences around playgrounds anymore. So in the 1970s, they removed fences. And what they found is all the kids like shrank to the middle of the playground and moved closer to the, whoever was supervising them. And, the reason, and they realized that the reason kids did that wasn't because they wanted less of a playground. It's because they didn't feel safe because there were no boundaries. And when you know where the boundaries are, you can use the whole space that you're, you have assigned to you. And so they, you know, around the country, they put fences back up around a lot of these spaces. And kids would then go play in the corners again because they knew they were safe within that space. Same deal when it comes to this. Same deal spiritually. If we know where the boundaries are, we can live comfortably and not always be anxious about if we're doing the right thing or not. We can know we're doing the right thing. Or on the flip side, you can know when you're doing the wrong thing. So... If the walls are in ruins and the gates are burnt, any good civic leader would think, fix them. Get this back up. So Nehemiah is not a priest. He's not a spiritual leader like that. But he is a spiritual leader in the sense that he just sees practically what needs to be done. And it bothers him that it's not getting done. So, <clears throat> verse 4. So it was, when I heard these words, I sat down and wept. I mourned for many days. I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven, as should we. When we see things being done and it's not as God intended, that should bother us. should be something about it when we see something not being done. What? And by the way, this is just the introduction to the book. The rest of the book is the answer to his prayer. And just like Ezra, we see God working in crazy ways, but they're not parting of Red Seas. Ezra and Nehemiah show an era of God's interaction with humanity where he doesn't do these big supernatural changes. But both Ezra and Nehemiah recognize 
that this prayer is getting answered through the events of day-to-day life, which is why we as Christians are always looking for God, and we see him working through fairly mundane things. So we'll see Nehemiah pray a lot through this book, just as an introduction. We'll see that Nehemiah can't repair the city on his own. So he's got a burden that's bigger than what he can do. And I think Christians, we're in the same boat. Like we're called to make disciples of all nations. No one Christian can do that. Jesus didn't even do that. But an entire body or church will see Nehemiah's first act is he's going to pray in this chapter, first chapter. And he's going to, we're going to see the influence that he has on others, not through dominion or domineering, not lordship as the world does, but he comes in as a servant king and he serves the people. And this is exactly what Jesus tells Christians to do. And we get a role model of it. So, well, I'll get to that thought too. One other thought, again, this is all kind of introduction to the book. One other thought about this is I think that anybody in business, anybody in a civic workplace should read, like Nehemiah should be required reading at a, at a Christian college in the business department. Because what we're seeing in the political science department and the sociology department, in the education department, like this should be kind of required reading because you see at some level how to work in a workplace as a godly person through the book of Nehemiah. So God's going to use Nehemiah, but first, before he uses him for great things, he puts a burden on him and he weeps and he prays. And what happens as he weeps and he prays is he changes. So before God uses somebody, he changes that person. And suddenly Nehemiah is a very different person after he hears this news than before he heard it. Burdens aren't just a feeling that we have, right? When were you called to do this? Oh, I had this feeling wash over me. Nehemiah doesn't just have a feeling here. He is abiding in something that really nags at him. This isn't right. And there's an injustice to it. Something doesn't sit right with him. And that burden becomes something where he has to either act or, or betray his own conscience. So he sits down and he weeps. The sitting down implication of he doesn't even have physical strength to stand and pray, which is how they normally would have. He cares deeply for others. He cares deeply for the promises of God. Nehemiah responds to the burden, not by running out and building walls, but by starting with spiritual warfare, defining in his own life and his own work what he needs to do. And he fasts and he prays. Another example of fasting, we're going to see the example of prayer. He doesn't act immediately. He, he does this. And again, we're commanded to pray without ceasing. And before we do anything or take on any endeavor, praying is part of how we go about doing that. So then as students of the Bible, we're like, well, how does Nehemiah pray? And we're going to get an example of that. It also says many days. We're going to see that, and I'll show you where, we're going to see that he prays for four months. And the praying and fa- the fasting, I hope, was intermittent or he'd be really skinny at the end of it. But many days is, is going to be exactly, because we have dates here, about four months of time, he just prays over his burden. All too often Christians feel a burden and then they act without having God's direction in doing it. And that usually becomes an effort that kind of ends in failure. Verse 5, And I said, I pray, Lord God of heaven, great and awesome God, you who keep your covenant and mercy with those who love you and observe your commandments. Um, so this is, you look this up in the Hebrew and it's, it's a weird one. First of all, you who keep your, the word you and your are not in the Hebrew. And in fact, the translators assuming the pronouns 
that are pointing to the first-person perspective. It says, I pray at the beginning, but then it does not use first-person pronouns. In other words, and I'll read it, in the, this is the English literal translation of the Hebrew, Yehovah Elohim of heaven, God great, feared God, keeper of covenant, mercy for those who love him, and keeper of his commandments. The pronouns are not first person, even though Nehemiah is praying in the first person. Does that make sense? So it's, it's, it's an interesting, so what's the point of all that? The point of all that is it's a kind of a different flavor of a prayer when you read the Hebrew. And, I, and for me, at least, the meaning got lost a little bit. For when I say covenant, who keep your covenant and mercy with those who love you and observe your commandments, makes God sound kind of like an egotist a little bit. Like, God, you love the people who love you. But that's just not how it reads. It, it, there's an address here. In other words, this is a, what he says here is he announces who God is in a very Persian way. The way you address somebody in the Persian is you say their full name. And so verse 5 is a proper formal address in the Persian language. And he's praying like somebody who's been trained in Persia. So Yehovah Elohim of heaven, God great, feared God, these are titles that are there. These are, are, are things that God has achieved through history that's added to his, his title. Keeper of covenant, mercy for those who love him, and keeper of his commandment. He is mercy for those who love him. It's not that he gives mercy, it's that he is mercy. It's a title. And so that flavor comes out. Compare this, if you will, for those people in Daniel, when you get to Daniel 9, verse 4, he says an incredibly similar statement where he just names who God is at the beginning of his prayer. And remember, Daniel is a Persian person who knows has a Persian education, and so is Nehemiah. And Daniel 9, 4 reads like this, I prayed to the Lord my God, who made confession and said, O Lord, great and dreadful God, keeper of the covenant, mercy to those that love him and to them that keep his commandments. Again, those that he's a command he's a covenant keeper, a mercy giver and he and he and he provide and he's a lover of people that are his own. And 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 again, part of how Nehemiah prays, I think it's really neat. I'm trying to pray more like this, but it's when I pray, I immediately want to tell God what I need. God, I'm praying for this thing, and I forget the idea that there is a certain dignity and honor that Nehemiah and Daniel bring by saying, when I pray, maybe it's more about you than about me. Maybe I can come before an almighty God and acknowledge who I'm talking to. And in doing that, I'm elevating or bringing glory to the name of God. And I'm not saying make a rule for yourself that you memorize a line and say it every time you pray. But just that breath of realizing who we're talking to when we pray. I, and what a glorious thing that we can take for granted that we have a direct line to God when we, when we open our mouth in prayer. And Jesus told us to pray without ceasing. Do it all the time if you can. How do you grow your faith? Pray more. So this act of faith, this recognition of who God is makes him more important than us even in how we speak to him. Lord God of heaven. This is Yahweh. God of heaven is outside of earth, outside of creation independent of us and independent of our timeline and our knowledge and our existence. God's outside of all of it, and we can talk to him. God great feared God, knowing how immeasurable God is, how potent he is, how vast he is. Think about that before you ask him for your new Tinker Toy set. 
right? You're talking to that God when you talk to God. The keeper of things. God actually holds our reality together. Our timeline is held together. The atoms in our body are held together by a force we don't really understand. Every element of existence is kept by God. The word there is shamer. It's used twice. God keeps as we keep. Same verb in the sentence. God keeps us as we keep commandments. The keep actually brackets the word mercy, which is a condition for both. God keeping us around is an act of mercy every second of our existence. Us keeping the commandments, the fact that we have commandments is a mercy from God, that we even know what he wants from us, and he's made it very clear. God doesn't have to do anything for us, and when Nehemiah approaches him in prayer, he acknowledges that in his first sentence. You are the keeper. You are, you are the one that gave commandments. Wouldn't it be great if God gave us a list of rules to live by? And the good news is he did. It's just we have a number of people that don't choose to read them. Beyond our comprehension, yet knowable at the same time. That, that's an amazing God of heaven. God of heaven, God of earth. Love itself, infinite, yet choosing to love us, finite and failed. That's mercy. That's the God we start with. He keeps his covenant through all of history. Humans keep breaking it through all of history. Yet he gives us a covenant and an opportunity to join it. We get to verse 6. Again, it's just a great prayer to dig into. Please let your ear be attentive and your eyes open that you may hear the prayer of your servant, which I pray before you now day and night. Nehemiah shows that despite God being extremely high up and beyond him, that this God also understands humility on our part. What a miracle. Leaders like Nehemiah, they're the first to serve. And he understands authority, so he understands how to come under authority. A lot of times people want to lead and they take authority. Nehemiah, he's not wanting to lead. He's wanting to serve a higher authority, which makes him far more potent on this plane potent on this plane. And it's truth. To respect the authority of God is actually to start this whole endeavor in truth. God is greater than me. You are wonderful. The word may getting used in verse 6, you may hear me. I Please let your ear be attentive. All this implies that he's not expecting anything from God. The opposite could also then be true. If he's asking for God's ear, it, it's possible God might not listen to somebody. If he's asking for God's eyes to see something, it's possible that God would, you know, he's omnipotent, but he could choose not to listen to a human being. So whatever Nehemiah is going to ask for or pray, he's understanding God may or may not answer that prayer. And I think that's a really healthy way to pray. God, heal this person if it's your will. And if you choose not to heal this person, your will, not mine. But I'm going to ask for it because you asked me to ask you for things. So he's praying day and night. The, your servant, which I pray before you now, day and night, asking God to hear and see his behavior. It's really interesting. If he is servant to this master, if he's totally dependent on God, the only thing he can do is ask God to see that he means what he's praying for because he's sacrificing for four months, time to pray, time to fast, and he's putting his life in a change of habit so that God can recognize his insincerity. Again, all of that can be bells and whistles we read in the New Testament. It can all just be a clanging symbol if there isn't a loving relationship there to start with. 
And I think this is just the, the people like, I don't know if I'm saved or not. Do you love God? I do. I want to love God. I want to be close to God. Then your heart's in the right place. The rest of it's just us building that relationship. Have you repented of your sin? Yeah, I regret everything I did. So great, because God says to repent of your sin. And the repentance of sin and the love of God put you in the right place. The rest is time and maturity. And Nehemiah represents somebody who's extremely mature in his faith. He doesn't presume that God will hear him. He asks God to hear him. Please hear us, Lord. Please hear our appeal. He doesn't fit prayer in whenever he has time for it and skip it when he doesn't have time for it. He's doing it day and night. And the consistency of Nehemiah means the rest of life gets to fit in after prayer time. How many of us think that way? Or is prayer time what you fit in when you do the rest of your life? But for Nehemiah, it's day and night. He's committed to a lifestyle of prayer and a lifestyle of coming before God this way. The rest of verse 6, For the children of Israel, your servants, and confess the sins of the children of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Both my father's house and I have sinned. Again, great leadership. First of all, this is true. The culture has failed God. The culture of Israel has failed. There's massive sin. What's interesting, though, is Nehemiah hears about something happening 800 miles away, but when he prays about it, it's we. We have sinned. The Israelite people have sinned. And, and again, he, and then at the very end, I have sinned. He confesses his own sin, too. This is a good question. How many times do you come before the Lord and pray and remember things you've done, sins you've had? And do you just, when you bring those things to God, do you just appreciate the mercy he's given that he's even in a conversation with you anymore? And you just say, here's the, here's the book on how to pray is what Nehemiah gives us. We see lots of examples of prayer in the Old Testament. I like Nehemiah's. You got Moses, David, Solomon. You got the prayer of Ruth. Got Hezekiah, Ezra, Nehemiah. We see lots of prayers in the Bible. But Nehemiah's prayer, the way he frames it, again, it looks a lot like a David prayer to me. Acknowledging who God is first, not presuming anything from God. Coming before him consistently, day and night. Acknowledging your position as a servant, not as a boss. Confessing of sins. I've, and the confession is so obvious here. I confess the sins of the children of Israel. Like we could pray the same for our country. I confess the sins of the United States of America. We've done some things that haven't been appropriate under God's law. We have sinned against you. And I'm not saying those nasty people over there have sinned. I'm just as guilty. I've sinned too. And Nehemiah does the same thing. He brings it narrower, not just the whole nation, but my father's house, my family. And then he brings it right to himself. Lord, I've sinned against you. So if I want to build walls around God's people, if I want to do a great work for the kingdom of God, what better way to start than come before God and understand that you're a sinner? And before God, you are someone who is not worthy of any mercy or work of God. What a blessing if God uses us for any, anything. He also calls the people of Israel, not Jewish people, but the children of Israel. This is great language. And we start to see this popping up in the Old Testament. The idea of a child is a child needs discipline. They need someone to tell them how to do it. They need guidance. They need mercy because they screw up. But the idea of a family is that God is the head of a family of people that he has claimed. And he's responsible for guiding and directing. And Hezekiah frames it this way, not because he knows what to do or how to do it, but because the people of God are a family of God and there's a responsibility to that family that Nehemiah feels. Verse 7. We, 
have acted very corruptly against you. And now he names the sin. We have not kept the commandments. Simple enough. The statutes nor the ordinances which you commanded your servant Moses. That's the Torah, right? The commandments in Exodus, Numbers, the statutes in Deuteronomy, the ordinances in Leviticus. Right? Boom, boom, boom. We, we just ignore all of it. Lord, I live amongst the people, the children of God, and we don't even know your commandments or your ordinances or your statutes. We've ignored them completely. Nehemiah knows what these are because he's learned them. And if we don't know what God expects, we're either ignorant of what God wants, that's not a good place to be, unaware when we're breaking the law, or we're actually self-deceived that we don't need to know what God thinks, or, or we're so important we don't even have to look at it. So, you know, just this idea of understanding that the nature of humanity, Nehemiah sets it up, he uses the word against. We're actually adversaries in God because this behavior of not knowing the law puts us up as your enemies. And we live in such a way where we have not kept them. So being against God, adversarial, but he also uses the words not kept, which is passively just not doing. So they're doing the wrong things and they're not doing the right things. Nehemiah fully explains and confesses this sin. And then verse 8, the prayer changes. Remember, I pray, the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, if you're unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though some of you were cast out to the farthest part of the heavens, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place which I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. Now these are your servants and your people, whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. I love how Nehemiah just prays the word. It's not what Nehemiah wants. He's, he's asking God to remember what God has promised in his own word. So this is what we'd call praying the scripture, praying it right back at God. When God says, I have gathered my people, he's just saying, have you? Because this is something you said we'd do. But there's a big but. Verse 9 has a but. The promise of God is conditional on the behaviors of the people. So he's combined a passage from Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 30, and he's paraphrased it. This is not word for word what you find there. And again, that's pretty common. They don't have blue letter Bible in their pocket. They're, he's remembering these scriptures. And so he combines these two verses together, and he asks for God to remember what he's promised, not for his own benefit, but for God's benefit. Notice that. These are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed, purchased by your great power and your strong hand. It's God's reputation that's on the line, not Nehemiah's. Nehemiah is doing fine. He's at court, richest place, most powerful place in the world. Uh, he doesn't need to be there. Daniel 9 uses the same prayer strategy of just being like, it's not for our benefit, Lord. It's for your reputation and your glory. Why do we study the Bible as a group of believers? Because we want to glorify God. And that's what we're here to do. Deuteronomy 30, before they entered the land, God outlined all of this. He, he predicted all of this. So Nehemiah is remembering that and going back to it, going, Lord, you set all this up back when you, when you made these promises. The word was a promise to judge them. That's already been done. But it was also a promise to restore them, which has not been done. So Nehemiah is remembering that passage. He goes back there. He asks the Lord in prayer to remember it too. Now these are your servants. Nehemiah affiliates with Israel even though he's from and born in Persia. 
but he, he recognizes that he's one of God's people too. It says, God's people are his right hand, his pata, the ones he's rescued, loosed, or set, set free. Uh, again, the phrase there with the, the power, uh, your great power by your strength. In the Hebrew, it's koa gadol koa. Yad hazad yag. I mean, it's poetic what he's praying right here. Power, great power, hand, strong hand. All the yours aren't part of the Hebrew. They should be in italics in your Bible. God, they're, they're there assuming it because he's praying in the first person at the beginning of verse 8. But then he quickly flips into this other mode. God, and, and part of this, I think, the, the Hebrews wouldn't even say the word of God or write it down because it was so holy. And I think part of abstracting in his prayer is a way to just understand spiritually there's a, a something between God and humanity, a veil of sorts that Jesus rips into at the crucifixion. But at this point in time, there is a, 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 a humility to Nehemiah's prayer in the way he prayers. Verse 11, it keeps going. O Lord, I pray, please let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant. This kind of bookends what we read before. And to the prayer of your servants who desire to fear your name. So again, the word fear there is not the, the horror movie fear. The word fear there is to recognize the power of God and understand our place under God. I just, and not only that, but here we get a passage where it's your servants desiring to fear your name. We don't try to, we don't all want fear in our lives. But with God, the fear is of something holy, powerful, and good. We want to tremble under a just and merciful God. I'd rather tremble under a just and merciful God than a strong human being any day of the week. These are people who desire to fear your name. And let your servant prosper this day that I, I pray and grant him mercy in the sight of man. In verse 11, Nehemiah finishes the prayer with a request. It's a four-part prayer then. Part one, he names God. Two, he confesses before God. Three, he prays the word back to God. And then four, he makes his petition. So let your servant prosper. Let's just understand what the petition is. Uh, the word there is salach. And I can't speak Hebrew very well, so. To rush or advance forward is the word prosper. Uh, prosperity gospel people use this passage like, see, he's praying for prosperity. Why shouldn't he get a Lamborghini? And that sort of thing. The word prosper there in the Hebrew means to push forward, to advance something. So it's not that Hezekiah is praying for more money. He lives at the court of the king. He's got all the money in the world. This isn't about that kind of prosperity. It is to push forward or to advance, or to, in the Hebrew Chaldee lexicon, to go over or to get through a problem, is to go forward. And he's praying for that. So understand when he's praying, let your servant go forward this day, he's praying about the burden that he has. And in context, that makes perfect sense. He's praying about this, this thing that's bothering them. And he's praying, Lord, help me get through this. Help me figure this out. I don't know how to do it. And he's been praying this for four months. Grant him mercy. Lord, I know I deserve punishment, which, which implies that Nehemiah has probably played along with the, Bab, with the Persian like thing of don't talk about Yahweh around here. So it may be if you rise to the point of being a cupbearer, it's not because you're an advocate of Yahweh. So there's a, a humility of an asking for mercy. And then it ends the chapter with, for I was the king's cupbearer. So right at the end, he tells us his position at court. And you say, cupbearer, that sounds like a low position. No, 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 no. 
In the Persian Empire, this is position number two or three. The king of the empire would probably have what they call a hand, a right hand, which would be what we might call the prime minister or the adjudicator or someone that goes out and advance. When the king makes a proclamation, that's the person who gets everything done. The cupbearer is easily number three in the kingdom. This is the only person in the kingdom the king trusts to drink and eat their food before they get to eat it. In an era where poisoning food was a great way to get rid of the king. So this is that, and frankly, if Nehemiah chose to get rid of the Persian emperor, if the cupbearer will betray the king, it's pretty easy to kill the king, right? You just switch the food out and do that. But Nehemiah is responsible for keeping the king alive. It's an extremely trusted position. The cupbearer would always be at court when the king was at court. So they would hear everything that's going on in the kingdom. It's a very prominent position. They would live in quarters that were right next door to the king. So when, you, when it says, for I was the king's cupbearer, it stands in contrast to the rest of the prayer where he's confessing his sin. He's showing his humility. He's saying he's a servant under God. Yet at the very end of the chapter, he points out to the reader, I, was, I had a lot to confess because I was the king's cupbearer. And or I had a huge burden and opportunity and I was in a position I could do something about it because I was the king's cupbearer. I actually was in a spot where I might be able to help with this problem. So it's not a coincidence that he leaves that confession to the very end of the prayer to tell the reader his position. Um, I think this says something about Nehemiah as a leader. As a leader, he doesn't blame others. He doesn't complain about the problem. He doesn't see the issue of a disgraced Jewish people and go, and go kind of whine to the king. The first thing he does is he takes it upon himself and he prays for it, and he's essentially praying, Lord, pave me away. For four months, he continues to act in his job dutifully every single day. He's not initiating action. He could have gone in on day two and gone into the Persian king and said, fix this problem with the wall. But he doesn't do that. He's What we would say is waiting on the Lord. So what he does is he presents himself to God saying, here I am, God, send me. But you have to figure out how to send me. I'm at your disposal, but he's not sure about how that's going to go, but he's going to dig in anyways. So when we get to the next chapter, and it came to pass in the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, I took the wine and gave it to the king. He's actually going about doing his job. So he's got a calling and a burden, but he actually goes to work every day until God makes the opportunity. Isn't that interesting? A lot of Christians feel that calling and burden and they just dump everything and jump into it. And maybe God's still orchestrating some things before that happens. Now I have never been sad in his presence before. Therefore the king said to me, why is your face sad since you're not sick? This is nothing but sorrow of heart. So I became dreadfully afraid. So again, there's parts of this. Nehemiah is telling us a God story. He made this prayer in chapter 1. This is how it unfolds. And this is how God answers prayer. And frankly, Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther show us a lot of how God operates in the church age. We pray for things persistently, day and night, because it's a burden on our heart. And then we see God do things, and then we praise God when it's done. Nehemiah chose to write a book. It's because we have to hear this God story. Like, this is a big thing. One person thinking we need to fix a city and God actually uses Nehemiah to get that work done. But there's a story that goes with it. Here's the start of the story. 
And this is what happened. So verse 1 kind of introduces it like that. And it came to pass. God answered this prayer. This is what happened. And it's not that the sea got parted or there's a pillar of fire from heaven. It just, it comes to pass. And from chapter 1 to here, going to the month of Nisan, it's been four months as we go through this. And they're lunar months by the Jewish calendar, all that sort of thing. Nehemiah prays for it, but then he waits for it. Also, he's been praying for the right opportunity. Here's his problem. If I'm the cupbearer, the most trusted person in the kingdom, and I go into the mighty Artaxerxes and say, hey, I'd like a vacation. What does that say to the king? What? They don't have time off. You want a break? Are you trying to open up the door for my assassination? Are you trying to get out of town because you're going to poison me and then leave? Are you betraying me? And, and again, it's not that he's lacking. It's not like he needs a break because he's tired. He lives at court. He gets every luxury this world can provide. He has everything the world can offer, yet he wants to leave and go to work on a quarry and start building walls. So it would be extremely dangerous to ask the king for this thing. So that also explains why he's waiting four months. He's not going to force the moment. The other thing is the cupbearer cup shuts their mouth unless they're talked to. So if the king doesn't address you, you cannot just address the king. Same issue came up with Esther. Like, you don't just go marching into the king and asking for things unless you're Esther, right? If you're the cupbearer, this is a great way to get killed. So he's waiting. He's waiting upon the Lord. The other piece of this is, this is a very particular day. The benefit of Nehemiah waiting faithfully in prayer and fasting is that he, this happens on a particular day. And it's a day that God's orchestrated. And in, in, in an amazing way, Daniel 9, 24 says that from the going forth of the commandment to restore and build Jerusalem unto Messiah the Prince, it shall be seven weeks and three score and two weeks. This is a major prophecy. And I'll, I'm going to make it really short because I've gone through this when we do the Gospels. It is this day with Nehemiah going to his job, doing his thing, it is this moment that is exactly 173,880 days prior to Jesus walking into this temple. It doesn't say on the commandment to restore the temple. It says the commandment to restore and build Jerusalem. That's the third wave. That's Nehemiah in this courtroom on this day, March 14th, 445 BC. If Nehemiah rushed this or picked a different time, it would mess all this up. And arguably, Daniel's already made the prophecy because he's active right now while Nehemiah is alive. They would have known each other. And so for Nehemiah to mess with the day, like it would have messed all of this up. So April 6th, 32 AD, if you're outside the city of Jerusalem, you'd see a guy coming up the hill on a donkey with people cheering and yelling that the Messiah had arrived. The reason they're out there cheering and yelling is because of this prophecy in Daniel 9, this moment with Nehemiah before the king. And it came to pass.